And so what I realized in that journey was that you will never take the athlete out of me. You will never take the artist out of me. You won't take the writer out of me. I can be a businesswoman and I can be creative and I can be a wild thing that loves running around in the mountains. I don't have to forfeit everything. So I guess in answer to your question, like, yes, I hear all the things that I do. I mean, curious is definitely my middle name and is what motivates me in life. But um, I think right now why I feel like I'm beginning to thrive is that I'm celebrating all of the aspects of honey. And motherhood, I think, is just the new one. And I'm actually, like, as hard as it's been and as sick as I've been, and I feel like I'm, I'm thriving because, like, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm losing any part of me. Welcome to the RMA podcast. host Nicole Bunyan, founder of Running Mums Australia. Each episode, I will be speaking to everyday women who have an inspiring story to tell. We will cover the highs and lows of their own journey, the impact motherhood has had on their life, and how running has inspired them to live wilder, dream bigger, and change the world around them. Thank you for joining us on this new adventure that will hopefully leave an imprint for you to live out your own life inspired to conquer goals you never thought possible. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the RMA podcast. I'm so glad you could join me today. Today on the podcast, I have one very special guest that I've been wanting to speak to for a very long time. Hanny Alston. Hanny is a well-known trail and ultra runner in Australia. She's also a world-oriented champion and she has performed over many, many years um, across the world in trail running, sky running and orienteering. She's a podcast host. She's a businesswoman of Find Your Feet store in Hobart in Tasmania She's a child tour guide and she's also a coach. Hanny is also a mentor to many and you might know her as one of the popular coaches who had some planners out for UTA over the past few years and so many people I know follow Hanny's amazing planners when they train for UTA. Her approach to training is different in that it helps you to perform a little wilder, which is one of her uh, catchphrases that she uses. Um, And her philosophy on coaching is different to most. She encourages people to get out there, have a go and create missions for themselves. So it's not so much about the competition um, with others or with oneself, but it's more about what we can learn from the adventures that, that we take ourselves on. Hani is also an author of two books, the Trail Running Guidebook, and now her second book, her new memoir, Finding My Feet, My Story, which is on sale now. I talked to Hani a lot about her story, which she shared in her book, um, from growing up on a farm in her childhood and the hope and determination and possibility that her story brings through the tapestry of her life 
which is woven with all of its highs and lows, triumphs and adversities to where she is today. She shares with us about her childhood to performing at her best on the world stage as a trail runner and orienteerer. And we share the stories of despair as she watched her family suffer and navigating through tragedy and grief. We talk about Honey's journey with an eating disorder. We also talk about can women actually be competitive and how do we embrace pain? What can we learn from it? We talk about how can we play wilder? What is it that we can do to make our adventures more meaningful to us? We talk about chasing the things that we love and finding out who we really are and how that process has played out for Hanny in her own life. We also talk about success and what that actually looks like and what our purposes are and what values align when we look at our purpose in our lives. We also touch on Hanny's newest adventure, which she's about to embark on motherhood, and we talk about the things that Hanny might be concerned about or what she's looking forward to most about the journey ahead. This conversation is really raw and honest. I'm so privileged to bring it to you today. As a celebration of our conversation, Hanny and her business, findyourfeet.com.au, are giving 20% off to listeners of the RMA podcast for the month of December, store-wide, which excludes sale items, with the code LISTENWILDER. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Before we begin, a message from this week's sponsor, Physiocram Massage Gel. Physiocram has been helping Running Mums Australia to achieve their running goals for years now and ease those post-training muscular aches and pains. Hurting sucks and Physiocram has our back. To get your own Physiocram, head to www.physiocram.com.au. Don't forget, if you're a member of the member program, you can get 20% off with your member code. You can also find Physiocram at your local pharmacy. And how are you feeling? Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, really good actually. Um, yeah, I've just hit 19 weeks today. So, yeah, and just starting to feel a little bit more human in the last few weeks. So, yeah, feeling good. Yeah, getting back getting back into feeling like a normal human. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. Mm. definitely. And we had a week off last week and just... Um, we weren't really sure what we were going to do and then the borders opened and it was so tempting to, you know, go further afield. And in the end, we had a spontaneous trip in Tassie and just, you know, at first year sort of mentality is like, oh, is it really, you know, like I feel like I've done so much in Tassie. Is, are we really going to be able to occupy ourselves for a week? And then we realised like there's so much still to do and it's just a blessing to be able to explore your own backyard. So, yeah. What are those things on your wall? Did you draw those? Yeah, I guess you were one of your questions I know that you were keen to ask was about like how I unwind and yeah, I actually love, I love art. Um, It's something that I probably haven't, haven't done enough of outside of like a work creativity sense um, for a while. And I just kind of going into the journey of motherhood realized that I'm not always going to be able to express myself, my true self outside and always you know being active and then I needed to pick up those things that I that also make me feel really whole and so writing is a huge one of them and art has been a really big one of them as well so Mm. yeah I'm actually loving it I just um 
signed up to some adult ed classes <laughs> for oh. this this term this semester till Christmas time and um, I go in and I feel like half the age of the room and mm. like it's really good for you not just from an artistic perspective and, and like expressing yourself perspective but also because being in that room really challenges me I can feel like I'm uncomfortable because it's not my tribe or not how I perceive my tribe to be. Whereas in like a athletic setting, you know, you're a lot more bubbly and you, you know, you're very expressive. And so I found it really, really humbling and a really wonderful experience. Mm, I really want to do that. Actually. I've thought about, um, I'm no, no way talented artist at all, but I do have a creative side and I love to explore that. And I did think about like, we have an art gallery here um, that offers classes. And I thought about doing like a drawing or a pottery or just something, I don't know, just something different to almost get myself out. Like you're saying, yeah. take yourself out of that comfort zone and try something new in yeah. an arena that you're not used to. It's really interesting because um, again, like I know some of the conversation that We'll probably fall into today is about like finding yourself in and knowing whether you think you're still on that journey or whether you know you feel like you're you're reaching a better understanding of yourself and hmm. actually this art journey has really brought it to life that I was saying to my mum like I haven't really picked up my pencils like this for years years and years I probably last real opportunity was I, I studied life drawing when I was at med school as well so I went to art school for a year and did life drawing. And um, back then, like, I think I was always questioning whether I was right. You know, I was always worried about what other people in the class were doing and what their style was or what the teacher liked or, you know, what I was going to get through my assessments with. And going into this space, it's like I just can sit down and draw and I just know intrinsically who I am and I feel like I'm not looking over my shoulder and therefore like I'm able to create work I'm actually really proud of. Mm. Um, and I think I'm better at it now than I was back then when I was at art school, even though I haven't done it and I should be as rusty as all buggery. But <laughs> I just think it was like a really interesting insight into finding yourself and like going, actually, no, I'm like, I'm actually really, I know who I am and I'm really comfortable in that and I'm unapologetically going to be just me right now. Yeah, and that's, <laughs> been, that's been a journey for you, honey. And we will talk all about that like as we go through. And what I really wanted this podcast to be was a little bit different to what you've probably had in the past. And you've probably got that from my questions that we're not really going to go deep into you know, all your major sporting achievements or any of that so much, but more about how those experiences in your journey have now shaped finding yourself and actually truly finding out who you are, which is a process for anybody in their life as they go in and out and ebbs and flows of life. Um, but your memoir, which we would definitely be touching on mostly in this book as well, uh, mostly in this podcast as well, um, talks about all of that experience, what's led to now and how you, I think you've really come into your own, I guess. Um, you found out what you really love and unapologetically are following that path. No matter what anyone else might want from you, you're following the path that you want. And mm -hmm. I find that quite inspiring because I know myself, you often, especially when you're known for doing something, um, 
there's that pressure and that expectation from others that sometimes shapes our journey. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot for someone to actually stand up to that and say, that's not what I want. Mm -hmm. uh, I want this path or I want, I want to try this. So I've seen the transition over the last few years and I've read your books and, and, and listened to your posts and listened to your podcasts and read, now read your last book, your memoir. And I don't know, I just find it so beautiful to watch you develop and evolve into this strong woman who's quite resolved in what they want in life. So, so much, Nicole. I mean, it means so much to me. I, you know, you don't, you don't go out on a journey of, I guess, understanding oneself to like please others, but it's really nice when I think someone does see the work that you have done because it is work at times and it's bloody hard at times, excuse the language, but, um, it feels very rewarding to feel like I'm being seen as me, you know, and someone that I am proud to be. And there's no ego in that statement, but I'm, I'm just really happy walking in the shoes that I'm walking in at the moment. And I know that it, it will evolve. It is, I, you know, I set out to run a business called Find Your Feet. Well, I didn't set out to run a business, but I, I now run a business called Find Your Feet. And it, I always find myself questioning, like, is it, an endpoint or a journey, like finding your feet. Mm. And I kind of do believe it's probably more a journey, more the latter. Yeah, that you you think you get there and then the world will shift on you just like we've had this year and you're suddenly forced to adapt and evolve again. And But I think the stronger your sense of self is at any moment in that journey, the easier it almost is to then continue the evolution of self. Mm, 100%. All right, well, let's start. And I think we'll just roll the podcast through what we've just talked about. Like, we'll just start right back where we started our conversation because I think everything we've talked about anyway is is relevant to where we're going in this conversation. So I wanted to start by just um, sharing with people that might not know you or might not have read your books um, who you are. So you wear many, many, many hats. <laughs> um, and you have worn many hats. You continue to. Um, so, you know, you've been an orienteering world champion. You're a trail tour guide. You're a coach. You're a sky runner. You're a trail runner. You're an ambassador, consultant, a podcast host, a business owner of Find Your Feet Store in Hobart and online. You're an author of two books, Trail Running Guidebook, and now your new memoir, Finding My Feet, and you're soon to be a mum. You're also a wife. You're so many different things. So who is the person that you probably, or is there one of those hats that you probably at this point in time resonate with most or are you still, um, how do I put it? Are you still, are all those things still big facets of your life? Do they all come together to make you who you are right now? That's a great question. Um, it's interesting because I used to have a very black and white view of things. And I think it did come from an elite sporting environment where it was always drummed into us that, you know, make sure you have a career or make sure you have your life in order for when you're no longer an athlete. And I'd sort of always had this in mind, like, you know, I need to make sure I've got a, got a uni degree. Like at the time I wanted to be a doctor or 
Um, you know, I was always making sure that I had work on the side and always funding my sport so that, you know, something went wrong. I, you know, I always had this sort of kitty build up. So I always had this persona or this perception that your, um, I guess we call it your archetype stops and then the new one starts. And so when, you know, without telling a long story, but when I got to about 30, I don't know what happened, but it was just like I had this quarter life crisis where I was suddenly was just like, oh my gosh, you know, um, I don't really completely know who I am, but I definitely know that I can, I can't be an athlete forever and I'm about to become a wife and how do these two things meet and one's going to stop and one's going to start. And that was exactly what I had in mind going into the 2017 Ultra Trail Australia 100K event. I was like, this is it. This is the heyday because I'm about to get married in a few months. One needs to stop, one needs to start. And so I guess I raised that because it catalyzed me onto a journey. I bumped into a mentor. It's like you meet your mentor when you need to meet them. And it was an unlikely meeting and almost a very unlikely union of personalities but um she was a life coach and neurolinguistic programmer extraordinary woman actually and i worked with her for about two years believe it or not and ended up studying under her to learn her craft because i was so inspired by her mm. and it was the biggest light bulb in that whole journey that has really resonated with me was this realization that it's not a black and white. It's not an and or, and or, or equation. Mm. It's something that happens in combination and it's a celebration and it's an ebb and flow of all the different archetypes of which you are made up of. And a classic example is when you become a wife, you don't no longer be a sister and you don't no longer be a daughter. Although I think a lot of people do wrestle with that relationship, you know, how to create the space in their you know, new relationship as a team um, without forfeiting the relationship you have with your parents or your siblings or your friends, you know. So, and so what I realized in that journey was that you will never take the athlete out of me. You will never take the artist out of me. You won't take the writer out of me. I can be a businesswoman and I can be creative and I can be a wild thing that loves running around in the mountains. I don't have to forfeit everything. So I guess in answer to your question, like, yes, I hear all the things that I do. I mean, curious is definitely my middle name and is what motivates me in life. But um, I think right now why I feel like I'm beginning to thrive is that I'm celebrating all of the aspects of honey. Mm -hmm. And motherhood, I think, is just the new one. And mm. I'm actually, like, as hard as it's been and as sick as I've been, and I feel like I'm... I'm thriving because like, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm losing any part of me. Mm. Um, I feel like um, when our child arrives, I can't wait to show that child all the different aspects of me and the same with my husband as well. Like, mm. So yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but. No, yeah. it definitely does. And I think that's, you know, all the different things that we do in our life, I think it's also part of the journey to discovering that we can have a multifaceted approach to our life. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It's not black and white. And what we bring to the table is a celebration of all those different parts of who we are. And, you know, as you have your family, um, all those parts will come to fruition as you raise your son or daughter. Um, you'll be able to teach them all those different facets of your life 
um, throughout their own life and all the things that are important to you, you know, molding their own life's journey. Um, so, you know, if you looked back 10 years ago, maybe it wouldn't have been as easy to see those different facets of your life. Yeah, I don't know if it wasn't as easy to see, but I think what was different then was that there was a, a competitive tussle between the archetypes. Um, and and being like a fairly high achiever, perfectionist personality, I think I felt that I kind of had to succeed in all of them all at the same time, which can mean that you can just end up running on a knife edge the entire time and can lead to many of the traps that I fell into, I think. So, um, yeah, so I, I think what is, what is different and I think where part of maturing as an adult and as a human being comes from is this understanding that it's okay to operate at 10% here and, and maybe the best that you can give is 70% here and, and to be happy with that and content with that. And I think it is about redefining success and understanding what it means for you as an, as an individual. And, yeah, so I think that is the difference. Mm, yeah well let's go back just briefly now and I just want to touch on a little bit of your past before we dive right into the book and some of the themes that that talks about and your life and then where we're going um but I just wanted to talk to you about your life as a child growing up so you grew up on a farm with your family so do you want to just tell us what that was like for you to grow up <laughs> in that environment <clears throat> I mean, I, I hope that I portrayed it as accurately as I could writing about it, but I just, I guess I describe it as the idyllic childhood. You know, we only had a small hobby farm, so we had 12 acres and, but I had, you know, my pony and my chickens and the ducks and my dad's extraordinary organic veggie garden. So my, my parents made everything from scratch down to the pasta and the bread, like, yeah. you know, everything. And, um, I had my best friends, fortunately, two young girls the same age as myself and my brother who lived 100 metres down the road and we were like, you know, absolute tomboys running amok through the valleys of, of Sandfly where this farm was located. And so it was an incredibly freeing childhood. Mm. Um, I think that the silver lining of it all, like the, the more challenging side of it, if, if I'm able to describe it, was that... Um, you're not then growing up in that urban environment of which many of your peers are. Mm -hmm. And you, we were only half an hour out of Hobart, but half an hour in a crusty old combi van with no power steering is far enough for your parents to, um, to see as somewhat of a barrier to always be involved in things. Um, mm -hmm. And also too, you know, having the responsibility of such a huge workload for my parents meant that, we were often we often spent a lot of our childhood there. So I think that at school, my brother and I, I was probably more blessed to be quite sporty. So when you're sporty as a you know as a a school aged child, you're often included a bit more easily. Whereas my brother was probably a little bit more of the intellectual of the two of us, and um, he loved like he loved his blunnies and his akuba and. And so bullying was a big part of our world at school. And, and I do attribute that to, to just being a bit different and, and being a bit sort of um, less conscious of, of the madding crowd. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
and the other challenge I think that came with it when you know later when I became involved in the sport of swimming was just this you know yeah huge um effort that my parents had to put into to driving us back and forward you know before 5 a.m we're in the car driving to swimming training and getting home at 7 30 at night at the other end of the day and I look back and just sort of realize and interpret the strain that that, that went through the family and how the family dynamics then played out you know mm. so and in some ways I think my brother and I still still have work to do to understand that there was no favoritism through that time. It was just the the nature of, I guess, the pursuits that we were both taking and the time differences that they required. So I think like, I'm so grateful for the upbringing because it get, certainly gave me a lot of confidence in, in, um, in the outdoors and the wilder environment and definitely gave me that sort of impish tomboy spirit that I have in me. But I also think that it came with its challenges to learning how to f not fit in, but um, yeah, I mean, in some ways to fit in, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Cause were most of your friends living more in the urban? Yeah. Yeah. So my parents, bless them, sent us both to private schools and they were very much within the heart of the wealthier suburbs of Hobart. Mm -hmm. And it was just confronting, you know, like, um, we didn't go to the movies with friends. We didn't um, really ever embrace the drinking culture when that established itself in high school. And, it, you know, I, and then by then I was also really heavily into sport and had really huge aspirations as, as a youngster. Like from the age of eight, I was determined I wanted to go to the Olympics. You know, I, I was that sort of kid. And so I think, you know, it was both a combination of growing up on the farm, the combination of parental expectations and, and wanting to, live in their trust and then also that um yeah just that cultural uh clash almost that went with the, the school environment i think it was just a, a really interesting experience how do you think i mean it's hard to know right now but i guess as you're about to have your first child mm -hmm. how do you think your experiences um, of the past growing up might shape how you might raise your own son or daughter? Mm. I don't think it comes down to a what or a where um, equation for me, but when I wrote my book and I was able to have that fortunate time to reflect quite strongly on what it was about my upbringing that helped me to flourish at times and also gave me struggles to grow through, um, I think the biggest one that it always comes back to was trust. Um, I think that we need to, as, as parents, to somehow form, and I don't know how I'm going to do this yet. <laughs> I think it will evolve as, as motherhood evolves and parenting evolves, but to, um, to, to raise your child with their understanding that they have your trust. Mm -hmm. And I think trust has to be earned. And I think that was something that I think then allowed me to really flourish as an athlete and especially when I got to my orienteering years and I was travelling overseas at small blonde age of 16 in countries like Estonia and accidentally sleeping in brothels and things like that was that my parents trusted me completely and explicitly. Um, so I think that that is really going to inform the way that I, that I raise our child with my husband. Um, and I think that probably the second part of that is diverse opportunities, you know, and enough time earthing in nature. So, 
you know, yes, if they want to be involved in, in all the aspects of maybe the urban style of life, but to have that time out and that time away from the hype and the social media and the busyness and the school classroom just to, to ground and earth. Um, so mm. I think that that's probably what I've taken away from my childhood. And so many people can learn from you there, honey. And I, I mean, that's something that you could you could share with the world when you have your children is, mm. I mean, as a parent, I struggle with that. Like I live right on the bush and it's a struggle to get my children who are now, you know, mid to late teens outside, which mm. is devastating to me. Um, but it is what, and I guess I live in Sydney, in suburbia. I mean, I'm on the bush, but I'm in suburbia. Like mm. I'm right in there. <laughs> and it is just so difficult to get mm -hmm. children to want to immerse themselves in nature. I think yeah. there's so much work that can be done to be able to get children to want to be outside in nature. I completely agree. And, you know, I've also been a primary school teacher and in my past and one of my roles was in inner city, like urban Melbourne. And, you know, I had girls one day when I did a little exercise on a Friday afternoon, I brought in all these veggies and just the, the thing was like, what's it called and how does it grow? And when my girls thought carrots grew on trees, um, it just made me realise the, you know, huge cultural challenge that we have here in Australia. Um, I've been really blessed to live, live abroad a lot and um, a lot of time I've spent in Sweden. And there, you know, the culture when you're raising children is to, during your um, month, they get many months, even the um, fathers get six months paternal leave there that you spend as much of that time outside as possible. So in summer, you see the mums out pushing prams with picnics and they literally, they'll get outside by nine and they get home at five, six, seven, eight in the evening and they've just been outside all day. And I think that that's the difference, but I don't think we need to be limited by the cultural challenges we have here in Australia. I just think we need to be aware of them. Um, and then to seek those opportunities to get our children out and ourselves out for that matter, you know, and break down that barrier of I've done my jog for the day and now I'm done, you know. Um, I also think that the other cultural barrier that we can break down here in Australia, not that I'm against racing and competition, but is that to break down the cultural identity that almost everything we do is competitive, mm. um, you know, from the opportunities for kids to be active in school is almost always competitive. PE classes are almost always competitive. You know, now going through and right up to running a business and it is a really competitive environment still. And so how can we provide opportunities for our children to express themselves and explore themselves in a way where they're not going to be judged mm -hmm. and it's not going to be a competition? Because I think then it breaks down the fear of being outside because it's not about then I need to... I need to perform in this environment. I can just be in it, you know, just present in it. <laughs> so, yeah. and that's something I've also learned for myself coming through my entire life being involved in competitive things to now, I guess, reaching a point where I'm like exploring ways to not be competitive. <laughs> yeah. I think that there's so much work to do in that space. I mean, that is one of the biggest barriers for participation in mm -hmm. sport, especially for girls, mm -hmm. that they feel like they're not good enough to participate. And I find it so sad. Even yesterday I was having a conversation with one of our RMA um, community ambassadors and we were saying how 
sometimes how hard it is just to get girls to come along to a social run. And that one of the things someone said to her was that she didn't feel good enough to come mm. because she didn't feel like she'd be fast enough or that she'd be able to keep up. And, and that's what, you know, I'm trying to break down those barriers with RMA that it doesn't matter like where you've come from, that everybody can participate. Everybody can belong. Um, and so much can be done with that with kids in sport, like mm -hmm. from schools to sporting clubs to just being able to, as parents teach our kids, like you said, to get them outside and just participating, mm -hmm. being in the outdoors and what we love about being active and moving our body. It doesn't have to be competitive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's so important. And even like I was saying to you earlier, we, I had a week off with my husband last week and we almost didn't go, you know, we almost didn't go because we were like, oh, we don't need it or we've had our weekends, you know, it's too much of a luxury to, to take a week off. And we were driving home together and just sitting in the car, just having some quiet moments and then found ourselves saying, you know, how different we felt on the return journey just for just being outside for a week, for sleeping in a tent, for just being together in a way that didn't involve like needing to do things or succeed in things or, you know, tick things off for the week. And, and I think kids are the same, you know, and I look back at my childhood and I think one blessing the farm gave us was a, there was a pause button in the day, you know, you'd get home and, Dad would be busy milking the cows, no joke. Mum would be making pasta or needing to do things and and we'd just be thrown out the door and pretty much told to earth and come back in an hour and a half when dinner's ready. And I, I think I'm really grateful for that learning, you know, to, to know when you need to turn off life. Yeah. 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 Um, one of the questions I actually had for later, but I thought this might actually work right now, is that... You know, there's been so many highlights in your career um, where you've been, you know, on the start line and on the podium of races. And now you've drawn, um, I guess, now you've um, moved to more of your own adventures that inspire you to get outside. Um, did you move to that sort of um, way of thinking because of maybe that fear of expectation of others on you from being at that level in sport or was it just that innate desire to be like when you were a kid to get out and explore like or was it a mesh of both um no it, it was very much an innate calling like very very much so and I think it really stemmed from probably the happiest that I had really been in my world up until sort of around that age of 30 was was growing up on the farm and just just always hatching adventures and exploring and I was a real tomboy I was always in trouble at school I just had so much energy and then sort of really lost my way and I'm really great I would never change any of the things that I've done and any of the experiences any of the pitfalls that I fell into but I really did lose my way a lot through my late teens and early 20s, even up until that sort of age of 30, I was still probably wrestling a lot internally and wondering where that, that impish wild spirit had gone. Um, I think for me, the angel in my world was my husband. Um, 
I think I was beginning to find that pathway. I just think it would have taken a whole lot longer had he not walked into my world and probably I think I could have got there alone. But he doesn't have a competitive bone in his body and he he saw through to the real me very quickly and realised that I was definitely the best version of me when I was whooping up and down a mountain with him or... Um, you know, I'd gone out the door and I'd, I'd done something that I was really proud of just roaming around and, um, or, you know, drawing and creating things that weren't of any judgment to anyone else. And, and so he started to really help me to sort of put the blinkers on and to, to channel my energy. And it made me realize that I don't think I'm actually a competitive person. I think I'm very, very self-critical. I'm very, um, determined to make sure that I, I do things to a capacity that when I'm grey and old I'll look back and I'm proud of mm. um, but I think that that head-on competition thing never worked for me it was very evident through my swimming and marathon days when I would need a bucket to sort of vomit that I'd get so nervous mm. um, that it wasn't competition wasn't for me and so when I started to like thrive you know when I ran the south coast track in Tasmania which is a you know normally an eight-day walk for people and there's there's zero out once you're in it's it's very full-on um and we did it in a day you know on my own with my friends and then you know grew from that and grew from that and my adventures grew crazier and wilder that I just started to really feel like I was coming home to self yeah and so I don't think I just want to say that I don't think that everything I need to do needs to be bigger and crazier and grander. And I think now I'm finding the harmony of like total joy the other day, just climbing Cradle Mountain with my husband at, you know, 18 and a half weeks pregnant. I went into it wondering if I was still capable of that and thriving on the day and just coming back with this lovely whip feeling in me that just gave me a glow for the next few days. And I, so I don't think it needs to be grand scale. It just needs to be this sense of like, this is where I thrive. <laughs> and it's finding that joy, you know, it's finding mm -hmm. that joy that you feel. Did you feel like you ever had that joy like you feel now when you were in competition? Um, my initial answer was going to be no. Um, but I think I'm probably lying to myself there that, I probably got those like real sense of relations in the really silly little things. Mm. So um, when I finally, for example, mastered the navigational art of orienteering, you know, I went from getting it right like 95% of the time at grand speed to learning if I slowed down like 1%, it allowed me to navigate. And then I learned that art slightly better 1%. And suddenly I was navigating at 99% all the time. And I just remember those like those little transitional moments where they were not, they were certainly not like um, monitored by where you finished on a leaderboard or by a time or by a place, but it was just this little moment where I was like, Oh, yeah, like that felt really good because I did it for me. So I think that there were those moments. Um, I think the other points that I probably got them in my competitive time was when 
there were the opportunities on the side of the competition. So for example, living in the Ukraine for six weeks and immersing myself in that culture and being uncomfortable in this new, really confronting culture and, and realizing I thrived in that. And so it was all the sort of things that went with competition, not necessarily competition itself. Um, and probably, you know, winning my world title, it wasn't the winning that was the highlight of that time, but I went into that race with a very different mindset. And that was after a period of really, really challenging time with my father's suicide attempt. My mother was fairly unwell as well by that point. I'd just gone through an ankle reconstruction where they said I'd never run again. And I stood on that start line with this absolute desire to run for my family, particularly my father. And to get out the other side of that, you know, nailing it, you know, it's probably the closest I've ever had to perfection in sport. Um, it was one of those moments where I think I found myself, you know, because I was doing it for me, but it's very hard as an athlete, especially an elite athlete to, to hone in enough on self and blank, like blank out all the noise. Um, mm -hmm. I think in a, particularly in Australia, it's, it's really, really hard. So, um, so yeah, I, I think I did find freedom in sport, but it was in unlikely places. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about your book now. So you've written this new memoir, which is your second book. So your first book was a trail running guidebook, which is excellent. And I've read that book. Um, and now your new memoir is called Finding My Feet. And it's a story essentially about your life and your journey. So what actually led you to writing your memoir mm. at this stage in your life? That's a good question. Um, I, I really did sit down in the writing process to write it. First and foremost, I had to write it for myself. Um, I was very, I am very aware and was when I sat down to write of how fortunate a life I've lived um, and how many extraordinary opportunities and quirky moments and people I've met and lessons they've taught me that I felt like I didn't want to lose any of that um, and that I could reflect back on it when I'm greater and older and, and, you know, revel in those memories and moments. So there is a selfish art to writing a book like that, I think. And I doubt that there's anyone who goes into writing a memoir who doesn't have some seed of that somewhere. <laughs> but I also learnt on the journey um, well, I think maybe before I go to that, I've always had this very, 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 very strong awareness, even right from my earliest days swimming, of the huge number of people that volunteer and give their love, their support, their teachings, their lessons, they're standing on the sort of side of the pool, timekeeping um, and donating their time, like, to allow you to have that gift and that journey. And I always felt this calling that I must give back and it still drives me today even in what I do. Mm -hmm. So there was definitely this um, sensation of wanting to pass forward the lessons that I'd learned, um, particularly from coaches who donated so much of their time and their wisdom to my journey. Mm -hmm. And that definitely was a huge part of the guidebook um, motivation. But I think that the third thing in there was that when I had reached 
the really challenging moments in life, one of the most beautiful gifts that was ever given to me was the simple statement from someone else saying, oh, me too, mm. you know, and this realisation that even though your experience is unique to you, it's still part of the human experience. And it was, for example, hugely apparent um, when my father attempted suicide, I couldn't believe how many people came up to me, people that I knew, people that I considered to be almost a best friend who said, oh, me too, my father, or, you know, me, me too, my cousin, my friend, my this, you know. And then later when I struggled with anorexia, you know, my coach Jackie, who also wrapped her arm around me basically and, you know, through that time and, and said, it's okay, me too, you know. And so I wanted to make sure that the book wasn't about the results, the accolades, the look where I got to now. It was just simply to state the human experience of those moments so that if someone wanted to read between the lines and gain hope from that, then I feel like I did what I needed to do. And it's just been an extraordinary process because the number of people who've read it, who've reached out of all walks in life, you know, and got their me too moment and some it's been from the running and I feel so motivated to go and like try new things and get out there right down to like my daughter's been struggling she's 50 she's still anorexic but your book gave me hope you know like there's this spectrum of stories and um so I feel like yeah the book has done what it needed to do even though I didn't go into it with any expectation that makes sense <laughs> Yeah, I got so much out of the book. And as you said, like people take parts and if they really read between the lines, they'd take parts of your story and and hear their own story in that as well. And, and that happened for me. I mean, so much of your story resonated with me as, as a woman and just things I'd gone through in my own life. I mean, even just when you talked about your struggles with eating disorder, um, I mean, that's a big journey of my life. You know, I had 15 years where I struggled with an eating disorder. And even though I say that I'm recovered from that, it's still something that is there all the time in the back of your mind. Mm -hmm. um, and just even the way that, you know, we, won't go to, we don't want to give people all the things in the book, but even just the way that you found yourself throughout that journey to now and that you're... Um, the essence of play that comes out in your life is so much like my own. Like, you know, I'm, I'm very similar in terms of, you know, I'm a perfectionist and I like to strive for almost for perfection in my own life in terms of what I do. It's not compared, it's not competing with anyone else, but myself. Mm. Um, but sometimes I feel like I can't quite hit the mark, um, which makes you feel like you're not, achieving or doing good enough or you're not enough you know and so many parts of the story that I read of yours honey just spoke to me and it's such a good book like I wish that I had um so much more time to read you know read it quickly I read it over I mean we'd had this conversation like that we um I was trying to read your book and I was like oh I'm, I'm still not done like but it was I really wanted to read your book when I had time to actually absorb mm. what you were saying. Um, I didn't want to just be sort of trying to fit it in. Mm. So that's what took me so long to finish it as I was just really trying to 
hear and listen to what you were saying in the book because often if I'm trying to squeeze things in it it's gone out of my brain but so much of it just spoke to me about my own life and so many more people I'm sure that your book has resonated with as well so I mean putting that you know everything about the book in the show notes so people can go and get it but one question I really wanted to ask you um about writing a book like that is that did you struggle with writing and being so vulnerable about the issues of adversity that you had to overcome? Yeah, it's a wonderful question, Nicole. Um, did I personally struggle being so open and honest in the book? Um, no, is probably my honest answer. I think because when the perfect storm happened that I wrote about in the book. And I first saw my father afterwards and looked into his eyes and could hear him, you know, stating over and over again, like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Like, I just remember this super strong realisation and I said it to him that it was okay because at least everything was out in the open now. And it really brought to life and it still are, you know, my two strongest values in life is openness and honesty. Um, that, and, and this realisation, I think, even at that point, that, that this was still just part of a human experience and that there was no fault at play, you know, there was no errors, it was just life. And life is a messy, giddy thing, as Shakespeare says. And so... Yeah, so in that respect, I went into the book very prepared to, I didn't want to bear warts and all to the point where it was a sop story, but I certainly wanted to express enough of the story that people could have their me too moment if they needed to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I could look back and learn, and even in writing, learn about the experience. But the, the biggest challenge I definitely had in the book, and you know, when I sat down to start writing, I was 32, um, 34 now not exactly old um (laughs) (laughs) many of the people involved in the story are still well and truly thriving and Mm. have had to go on their own journeys to you know because the human web is so interwoven and our lives are you realize when you start writing about them like how intricately woven we are all together and that they've been on their own journey of like growth and rebuild and learning about themselves. And I didn't want to be the one that came in and brought it all back to life, you know, drag them all back to the, the grime and the dark and the dirt. And, and also didn't want to be the one feeling like I was trying to tell their story, even though it's very hard to separate your stories out. But at that moment, I was really blessed. I had the same editor who helped me with my guidebook and, she just said to me, like, hand, just write it all down. Just put it all down. And that's where the beauty of the editing process can come back. And as it turns out, I didn't edit anything. Um, the book is as I wrote it. Um, and when I read back through it and she read through it, there was just nothing that I felt like I wanted to exclude. And I think I was very fortunate to find in the writing process an ability to focus the spotlight more on myself, you know, so... I had the experiences with these people, but this is what I learned. This is my experience in the moment. Um, It didn't make it easy to share it for the first time with my parents, the first manuscript. Um, My mum 
struggled. Um, I think my dad did. He's a bit more of a private person. But um, I still think that we're all stronger for it. I think that they're grateful for it because probably like you, you know, they can see the growth that the journey gave me, the, the incredibly fortunate life that I'm now blessed to live. And I couldn't be doing it if I didn't have those moments. And so, like we say, none of us regret anything. I mean, I think we, we mourn probably the intimacy of the family unit that disintegrated through that time, but we've learned to thrive in our own way. And um, I hope the book portrays that and I think it does. Yeah. yeah, no, it definitely does. Did you find when you were struggling, um, you know, with your father and his mental health and when he did attempt suicide, did you find it a difficult time when he was taken away from you? You know, he um, the hospital and he was away from you. Did you find that a really difficult time? Yeah. Did um, you know that he was suffering or did he keep that time hidden from you? I, there were there were a lot of closed doors in my childhood. Um, and I, you know, in some ways I'm very grateful to my parents for protecting me from the struggles that obviously and clearly did exist. Um, because both my father and my brother had had their challenging moments and my mum is very strong and um, sort of rose through it all to some degree until much later. Um, so I think I did go into that fairly torrid time with some realisation that it wasn't completely out of the blue. But the way it outplayed itself and the graphicness of it um, was very out of character to my father. And I don't know, I think I was so set on almost trying to be the super glue through that experience that I probably didn't give myself any space to grieve. I, th I sort of remember maybe a 24 hour period where I, I felt confused maybe was the word and to some degree, a little bit lost. And then I realized that, that we needed to kind of rebuild and it, and it kicked in very, very hard. Um, and so I did, I kind of did become somewhat of a super glue in my family and the positive one, the one that wanted to, I guess, give us things to um, celebrate or, and, and in many ways I, I played that out through my sport and my uni accolades and I, I just became that very strong high achiever. It sort of pulled that side out of me stronger. I think it wasn't till later that I really, much later, I'm talking, you know, 10, 11, 12 years later that I probably really, really came to grieve. I think it was almost like a post-traumatic experience and it wasn't long before I wrote the book that I probably had that time of even up to a couple of years where I suddenly was trying to make sense of the world. Um, and I think it was just sort of at this point where I was leaving my 20s and, and entering what I kind of saw to be more my womanhood years and not really, and then, it, you know, in, about to sort of enter, I've been with my husband for many, many years, but somehow the concept of getting married, as exciting it was at the beginning, it then became fearful of like, what's my model of excellence in a marriage, you know, and 
knowing that I'd already had my own struggles and how, how do you keep your sense of self and strength and identity as you enter that sort of new phase and was it going to involve motherhood and all these sorts of questions sort of came to mind and it just seemed to bring all that back to life and I think that was when I really missed the family unit and and when I really saw how fragmented we'd become even though we were sort of close at the same time and so I don't know if my relationship with my father is what I used to have but I don't think so um but I I do know that he's still my father and he's continually teaches me every day (laughs) and humbles me and brings me back to earth and it's just different and I I think that's okay I think that's human nature we evolve yeah so and did you did you feel that and you don't have to share this but did you feel during that time that you almost had a responsibility to your mum and dad to keep them going Mm, completely yes yes 120 percent. yes I, I definitely do um how old would you have been how old were you when um I was 19 when my father attempted suicide in some ways you know you you may be grateful it wasn't earlier but then in some ways I think it was an incredibly hard hard age to go through that because you're so aware yeah. you know by that point of of the world and um, you're just trying to kind of find those next steps in life, having left school and that sort of sense of somewhat protection of being under the family and the school unit and you're now out in the big wide world and suddenly like the world was in chaos and, um, my, you know, my father was hospitalised for a very long time and my mum ended up struggling later and... Um, I became somewhat of a carer to both my parents. I think it was a double caring role um, because I, even though I would never state that I was struggling, I did begin to struggle and anorexia was mainly the main struggle that I had. And um, so, you know, in some ways they would keep reaching out for me and looking out for me, but in a huge way, I felt like I was was the one sort of looking out for them. Mm. Um, and And I think it is just about coping. You know, we all have different ways of coping and in those moments there's no right or wrong um but my older brother's way of coping was almost distance from it all but then that kind of meant that I was a bit more super glue you know because I tried to compensate I think subconsciously it was just this sort of yin yang balance that we were having and so yeah and then I I don't you know in some ways does that relationship still play out I think it does a little like as in a positive way now though that like um, it's made me always want to make sure I'm there for mum, you know, and vice versa. And it um, makes me always want to make sure I'm looking over my shoulder and just checking out for dad and vice versa. Yeah. Um, and always sort of making sure that my brother feels included <laughs> as well, even though that's a hard relationship. So like I say, it's not, there's nothing wrong in it. It's just different. But it, I think it probably did raise the height and the emotions later on and trying to understand that experience and therefore my role back in my family going forward and who I now was as a woman. And your journey with anorexia, one thing I know with eating disorders just from my own personal experience and from hearing the experiences of so many other people is that 
and this might not be your experience, but did you find that because your world was in so much chaos, that that was the one thing that you could control? Mm, I always, I hear that a lot and I, I really did, I did wonder about that. Um, no, I mean, I, maybe, but I don't think so. I still don't, I don't even know if I'll ever know why, you know, the relation, I call it a relationship, like a friendship formed with anorexia. Mm. Um, it just did. Um, I had very, very challenging experiences in the swimming environment from coaches skin folding us from the age of 13. And um, we had, I wrote about an exercise that, in, I wrote about it in the book, but an exercise they did where they made us all stand up and sit down if you've eaten chocolate, sit down if you've eaten ice cream, sit down if you've eaten, sit, you know, and then, then there was one girl left standing who went on to develop severe anorexia. And then they said, you know, in two weeks we'll redo this and we expect the whole squad to be standing. And then it wasn't just in two weeks' time, it was in a year's time. Mm -hmm. And so many of that squad went on to develop anorexia. So I think it was sort of this, like, instilled probably as a seed at a really young, very influential age, um, I began to then associate lighter with performance. Then that definitely carried through into the running scene early on. I sort of left it behind, but it kind of came back the better I got. Um, I, when I was in this sort of crucial transition between orienteering and marathon running, I had a real identity crisis where I felt like the tree-hugging orienteer stepping onto this very chic fancy athletics track road environment where everyone was in crop tops and undies and I wanted to run in three-quarter tights and you know zip up top you know I just it felt like a little out of place and I had coaches who were very vocal about your weight your size your strength um, and as we know from the trail running world you know women who run off-road tend to be stronger and stockier and it's it's a virtue it's a wonderful thing and yet when you step into that athletics environment, it's not seen to be appropriate. Um, and that was still really hammered home to me only like four or five years ago um, from a coach in Canberra at the Australian Institute of Sport who came up and pinched my thighs in front of the entire squad and said, well, if you want to get better, you could start by losing a bit of that, you know, and it was all muscle. Um, I just run a three-hour um, trail marathon at Wagga Wagga. So it wasn't exactly out of shape. And... So like, I just think that the experience with my father, um, it probably more hastened my desire to climb out of this hole. And the way I saw that I'd climbed out of the hole was to succeed on, on the world stage and in my goals. Mm. And I just wanted to get there bloody fast. Mm. And I realised, well, I felt it more than I thought it. I could just feel myself moving faster and it really came as I got lighter and moved more freely over the ground. And it was, you know, it's like this knife edge point where on one side it's positive and go too far and down you go. And I just kept taking it too far and too far and too far and pushing myself too far. But it was just after a while, it just became what you knew and you didn't, you almost get to the point where you don't know what's normal anymore. And sadly you're surrounded by this culture in Australia of, a lot of underweight runners um, mm -hmm. in that road environment and no one was normal, no one ate healthily. There was, it was so hard to find a positive role model and I think we were all on the knife edge. 
What a beautiful story so far from Hannah Alston. Our podcast conversation was long and covered so much of Hanny's story and I didn't want to leave anything out. So I decided to make this podcast recording a two-part episode recording. So you can now head to episode two and have a listen. The episode is now live in your podcast app and I look forward to bringing you more of Hanny's story. Don't forget the member benefit program for the 2021 season is now open. You can head to runningmumsaustralia.com.au to join up and also as mentioned at the beginning of this podcast you can head to findyourfeet.com.au and you can get 20% off Hanny Olsen's store for the month of December which excludes sale items with the code listen wilder. For now please head over and listen to part two of our conversation with Hanny Olsen.